CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you with us for another show as we continue covering the coronavirus in Georgia and look at it across the country as well. Um, For many people, and and I'm certainly one of them, I think the last 24 hours or so, uh, the situation has suddenly felt even more grim than it has in uh, even the past couple of weeks. Part of that is because of the um, news conference or the briefing the president gave yesterday in his stark warning, which we'll get to in a couple of minutes, uh, but also because the figures here in Georgia continue to accelerate. We, just to give you a, a brief look at where we stand as of today, we now have 4,117 uh, 4, uh, confirmed cases of the uh, COVID-19. That's up more than 1,000 in just the past 24 hours. We've had 125 deaths. That's up 23 in the past 24 hours. And um, we're seeing spikes in counties across the state. At now, at least 139 counties in Georgia have at least one case or more of, of COVID-19. That's up 10 counties in just the last 24 hours. And uh, cases in Doherty are continuing to really spike. They uh, confirmed 188 new cases just since yesterday. Um, so things are, are looking a little bit grim here in the state. Uh, one of the, I guess, positive stories we can uh, say is that Governor Kemp is now uh, saying that for a variety of reasons, we have the ability now, we'll be able to do a ver- uh, many more tests, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But, but I want to point something out before I introduce the panel. Georgia's testing has really been at an incredibly slow pace when you compare it to other states around the country. So just as an example, we have now conducted 16,181 tests in Georgia. And just if we look at states in our area, Louisiana, which has a population of maybe half of Georgia's, has already done 39,000 tests. Even that isn't a lot, but it far eclipses what we're doing here. Um, and other states around us are conducting more tests. As, I, as we said in the headlines today, Georgia has the lowest rate of testing per capita in the United States. So there, there are lots of reasons why um, the situation doesn't look uh, particularly positive today. And then there's this. President Trump, in his briefing yesterday, said this. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. And then hopefully, as the experts are predicting, as I think a lot of us are predicting after having studied it so hard, you're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel. But this is going to be a very painful, very, very painful two weeks. All of that said, um, this seems like the perfect day to talk to leaders in communities in Georgia who really have the responsibility for figuring out how they want to protect their citizens. Um, And so I'm very glad to welcome to the show today Charlotte Nash. She is the chairwoman of the Gwinnett County 
of the Gwinnett County Commission, the chair, chair of the county. Thank you for being here this morning, Charlotte. Well, thank you, Bill, for the invitation uh, to, to, to be here on the show. I appreciate it. And we also are joined by Sandy Springs Mayor Rusty Paul. Uh, both Rusty and Charlotte will talk in a minute about the restrictions they've put in place. But in the meantime, Rusty, thank you for being with us. Well, Bill, it's good to be back, and uh, I'm absolutely delighted to be on with my dear friend, Charlotte Nash from Gwinnett County. Uh, she's one of the great leaders in the metro area, and she's retiring, which is a sad fact for all of us. Yeah, I guess, uh, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, probably not having an expectation, Charlotte, that this is what you'd be dealing with as you come to the end of your service in Gwinnett, but we'll talk about that in a while. We're also joined by State Senator Jen Jordan. Um, Jen, you were one of the people, I believe I'm correct, that uh, after being exposed to the virus during uh, one day of the special session down at the Capitol a while back, you had to put yourself in self-isolation for a couple of weeks. Is that right? That's right. I just got out. So uh, but I'm still actually not out. <laughs> just still at home. Yeah, I mean... Yeah, well, congratulations. You're out of self-isolation at a time when we're all being told not to leave our houses. Right, uh, that right. includes Greg Bluestein. Greg Bluestein, of course, is with us. He's a political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, joins us on our Wednesday shows. Uh, Greg, I assume, like a lot of your colleagues, uh, more and more of your time right now, rather than being devoted to electoral politics or issues at the state capitol, you're spending covering uh, COVID-19, um, in, in some cases, in the context of politics. You got it. I mean, almost exclusively, I am, I am reporting about the governor's response, the state's response, concerns from mayors, you name it. And when I do write about politics, it's in the frame of coronavirus. So, all right, let's get started and talk about restrictions that uh, have been put in place by uh, both Sandy Springs and Gwinnett County. And Rusty, if I can, I'd like to start with you because you acted uh, sooner than a number of other communities in Metro Atlanta to establish some rules for Sandy Springs. You can tell us when exactly you put your restrictions in place and then tell us essentially what you've done and, and ask the residents of Sandy Springs to do. Well, we uh, started uh, really about two weeks ago and uh, putting in some, you know, mostly requests. Please stay at home. Please do social distancing and so on. And and it's worked in the main. And then uh, last, uh, a week ago, yesterday, Monday, uh, we issued uh, more formal uh, uh, conditions that we asked the citizens to do shelter in place. Uh, if you're a business, make sure that you're only doing the essential operations for, um, you know, to survive your business. Take advantage of telecommuting, work at home. We ceased uh, in dining, and but we really have strongly promoted takeout to keep our restaurants going. Uh, we didn't do a total, I mean, business shutdown because uh, we didn't, uh, you know, the problem, and, and Charlotte and Jen both understand this. When you make decisions of this type, these decisions have faces. You know these people. You, you go to their restaurants. You're in their businesses. And so when you're, you're affecting their livelihood and everything else and uh, their life savings and their employees, and it's some of the most heartbreaking decisions that you have to make. But it's working. I'm sitting here at City Hall looking out on the streets, and there's nobody there. I'm looking at one of our busiest shopping centers, and there are 12 cars there, and they're probably the employees. 
So uh, people are staying home, uh, and they are practicing social distancing in the main. And so, so far, that, that aspect of it's working very, very well. Charlotte, I want to read you very briefly a, um, a, from an op-ed that, that G.T. Bynum, who is the mayor of Tulsa, Oklahoma, had published in the New York Times this morning. I read it and thought immediately of the show we were doing today. Uh, he put uh, pretty strong restrictions in place in Tulsa some time ago. But, but here's what he said. And, and Charlotte, you're welcome to respond to this and then tell us about what you've done in Gwinnett. He says, the public response to his measures was swift and intense. Many people thanked me for taking action to save lives in our communities. Others compared me to Hitler. The tension between individual freedom and community safety is not unusual, but it's particularly acute as people across the country are being asked to face an, an invisible enemy for an indefinite period of time. Not a day passes without one group of people pleading to lock it all down while another uh, reminds you of their right to assemble. And then just to conclude it, he says, mayors don't have time for philosophizing. We have to get things done. Either the street gets fixed or it doesn't. Either the police officer gets hired or he doesn't. But what if you didn't know which street to fix, how many officers you needed? How do you take on a virus in an epidemic if you don't really know where it is? Charlotte, how do those words resonate with you now that you've put restrictions in place in Gwinnett? Uh, well, uh, Bill, for sure, the same sorts of tensions uh, existed, I even in my within my own thoughts in terms of balancing. You know, I, I don't take lightly the impact that we were going to make on many people's uh, financial situation, uh, as well as restricting, putting restrictions on what people in the U.S. Uh, see as fundamental rights and freedoms. It, it was not done lightly. Uh, what we weighed off the potential impacts against what we felt like we needed to do to try to give our hospitals and and quite honestly our first line re, uh, first responders uh, a, a fighting chance to uh, manage through the surge that we knew would inevitably come but I learned a long time ago and remember I spent over 40 years in in local government uh, uh, and during that time, by the way, I've not seen anything quite like this. And yes, Rusty, my, my dear friend from from uh, Sandy Springs, uh, I did not imagine that this is the way I'd spend my last year in office. Um, but, you know, I learned a long time ago, if I'm getting criticism from both sides, then I've probably done a pretty good job of getting in the middle and striking a reasonable balance. Uh, and that's what we're we're doing, uh, trying to keep up with what's going on. And yes, we we uh, I declared a local emergency on March 19th that runs through April 13th. Um, we were fortunate that we had in our ordinances <clears throat> a very strong emergency uh, provisions for emergencies. It actually goes back to a tornado. Uh, that occurred in 1998. I was county administrator at that time. I can guarantee you I never dreamed that that what we wrote at that point in time would uh, come into play uh, in this kind of setting for sure, but it, it, it was very helpful 
to allow us to to move uh, quickly as we needed to. I really expected we probably would wait a little bit longer than what we did to move to the stay-at-home uh, order that we issued last Friday. However, watching the numbers and seeing the acceleration, uh, talking with our public health director, uh, my, all the mayors of the 16 cities within Gwinnett County, we came to that decision uh, last Friday, and we uh acted on that. Most of the cities acted the same day that the county did on Friday, uh, this most recent Friday. And um, I I'm, I'm, can't say enough about the great cooperation that uh, all of the cities have uh, ex have exhibited uh, this kind of thing. Uh, it's confusing at best for the folks within the county. Uh, about 75% of the residents and the geographic area of Gwinnett are actually an unincorporated Gwinnett but many people identify with a city name that's on their postal address. So uh, it it was. What? Go ahead. Uh, do you mind? I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I, I say to our listeners all the time that because we don't see each other, uh, I sometimes interrupt when I don't mean to. So I apologize in advance uh, if I'm if I've done that. But but thank you for that summary, uh, Charlotte, Greg and Jen. Uh, I, here's something that I think is interesting that relates to Gwinnett County. Uh, uh, Michael Thurman was on our show on Friday and we asked him about when he thought he might put uh, stay-at-home, shelter-in-place restrictions in place in DeKalb County. And, and he made a, an important point, I think. Um, it, he said, you know, I, I, Gwinnett County, we have a big border with Gwinnett County. If I put an order in place uh, for businesses to close down, for instance, uh, restaurants to close down, uh, people in our community can cross the line into Gwinnett and they can go to the restaurants that remain open there. And so what he said to us was he was going to talk to Charlotte Nash. He was going to talk to the uh, leadership in Gwinnett County and say, we've got to do this as a team because otherwise there's no impact at all. And, and Greg and Jen, that raises the additional question, especially now that public health figures across the United States, media organizations, national media organizations, are looking at Georgia and saying that Atlanta and other cities in this state appear to be poised to be the next real hotspots. We already have it down there in Doherty County. That, Greg... Uh, raises the question of at what point does the governor begin to think about statewide restrictions? How long will he be comfortable allowing municipalities to do it for themselves? Yeah, and look, the virus doesn't care about county lines or state borders or anything like that. Um, and that's why mayors have and, and county leaders and local officials have raised concerns over and over again about uh, the concerns about uneven restrictions. One county might have a mandatory curfew and shelter-in-place order. The, the county next door might might be doing exactly what the state has ordered, which is which is more still restrictions, but more limited restrictions. And that's led to a patchwork of regulations that 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 aren't uniform and that are worrying to to a lot of officials. And I think we heard that from from Mayor Paul earlier this week. He was on a call with he could talk about this. He was on a call with with mayors who who expressed concern about this hodgepodge of, of regulations. Right, and I think it really should Jim. be about. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really, sh I really do think it shouldn't be about leaving any kind of individual city or county behind here, too. I mean, look, this is a really scary time, and people are looking for leadership at the top. 
And it really should be about collaboration at the federal level, at the state level, and, um, and then even within the state at the county level. But Greg's right. I mean, the virus doesn't um, think about county lines or city lines. And I think there have even been some jurisdictional issues that have popped up in terms of, well, what about cities within counties? If the city has kind of adopted a different approach than what the county overall, and I know there's been some back and forth about that, which is just confusing. And I think what we've seen here is the most important thing is that we need to be clear um, in terms of what we're telling people, because when people are confused about what they should do or what they shouldn't do, I mean, that's when we start to see really bad stuff happen. Rusty, uh, Greg makes a good point. You did join with a group of mayors across the state in uh, expressing your concern to the governor that it was time to establish statewide guidelines for staying at home, closing businesses, whatever. Um, Talk about that a little bit. Well, first of all, I have to say Eagle Eyes Bluestein, you know, Caught something in one of my Facebook posts, uh, and 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 uh, my mother taught me a long time ago to make your words soft, so that when you have to eat them, they're more easily digestible. Uh, I got out over my skis a little bit, and it was a little premature because GMA. While there was a lot of discussion about that when GMA polled the mayors, uh, they uh, they decided to kind of go a different way. So I was a little bit out there, and I've had uh, you know as my mom said, digest some of my words. But she also taught me to accept responsibility for when I mess up to uh, say, yeah, I did. And uh, so I was a little premature in that. But there is a lot of concern. One of the things, one of the good things about it is that uh, I think the governor is going to be talking a lot more frequently with with the mayors. He's going to have a weekly call with us, which is very positive. Um, And he's, you know, we're all trying to thread a needle here. And it's a very difficult needle. And and we've alluded to it uh, because we've also shut down our economy, and you're not going to be able to flip a switch in the end, and everything just suddenly start right back up. And that's the balancing act that the governor's trying to work through, is how do you get there? He's trying to work through it. I'm trying to work through it. Charlotte's trying to work through it. Jen's trying to work through it. All of us are trying to thread a very difficult needle without knowing exactly where we're going and how we're going to get out of this. So there's a lot of criticism that can be aimed at at a lot of different places. But right now, everybody's simply trying to do the best they can in figuring out what needs to be done. One of the great things is there is a lot of collaboration going on. I'm on the phone almost daily with the mayors of North Fulton, with Dunwoody, Smyrna, Brookhaven, and the other areas around us, and there's a lot more coordination going on at the local level. We local officials are always complaining that the state – takes away our right to be able to do things at the local level, make our own decisions. Well, we're being given that decision. And yes, I'd like to see a little bit more guidance, I think, from the state. But, uh, you know, I like the flexibility of trying to craft the solutions that are, are, because this is not a one size fits all. What I'm facing is much different than what's going on down in Jeff Davis County. So this one size fits all is not going to work in this situation. But a little bit more conversation, a little bit more guidance would be helpful. And I think the, the governor's offices uh, has agreed to do that. They understand that's important, too. And so I'm, I'm very encouraged by that. Jen, um, one of the reasons Governor Kemp has given when asked this question of why he doesn't issue a statewide order for uh, shutting down restaurants and 
and uh, and uh, businesses pu- issuing a shelter in place order, whatever. One of the uh, reasons he's given is that because there, uh, it, it, the virus isn't active in any number of counties, and he doesn't see the point in uh, holding them to the same standards as the places where there have been lots of uh, outbreaks. But the reality is. Uh, we're now up to, uh, what, 139 counties in the state. So all but just a handful of counties now do have coronavirus. And we've seen clearly that once you identify at least one case, if not more, there are going to be more to follow. So it does seem to me that uh, it, it increasingly uh, is going to be true that almost every county in the state is going to have to deal with this in one way or another, Jen. Yeah, well, and also I think what a lot of folks who've been following the statistics have been honing in on is the fact that there's there's this one statistic that comes up in the DPH daily status report, the Department of Health numbers, and it is the unknown county number, which is at 183 now, 183 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the state that people aren't attributing to a certain county. My guess is, is if you did, that the virus would be seen in every single county in this state. And and so I, I don't think that it, it necessarily makes sense to say, well, you know, Jeff Davis doesn't have one yet, or this other county doesn't have one yet, and therefore we're not going to act statewide. Because I think what we're seeing is when you don't act statewide, then we're, we're absolutely going to see it spread um, throughout the state. Charlotte, uh, the latest figures that were released last night at 7 o'clock by the state show that you have, I think, 242 cases in Gwinnett. That's up 64 from the previous day's reporting. Give us a sense of uh, your uh, feelings about the spread of the virus. Uh, how are your hospitals, you know, how are the medical centers dealing with this? Are they prepared? Give, give, paint a picture for us of how you're preparing to deal with the medical side of this. Uh, I'll be glad to do that, but I want to reiterate uh, some of what uh, Rusty had to say. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, make decisions that are fitted to Gwinnett County and its cities. There's, a, uh, as he noted, there's a huge amount of collaboration that's going on. Uh, I've talked to uh, probably 10 or 12 different uh, commission chairs from different counties. Uh, Barra County, which is my adjacent county to the east, uh, adopted a stay-at-home order uh, that goes into effect or went into effect last night at midnight. So they were a little bit behind us. Their their numbers are are uh, lower, and they didn't move as quickly. But essentially, they've they've uh, uh, picked up on our order. Uh, there there's lots going on uh, in terms of collaboration of, of the folks where we see movement among our counties uh, and cities. Uh, but going to your your question specifically about how it's prepared right now, our hospital systems are are uh, fine. Uh, we've not seen the surge, of course, and the numbers that we're seeing the the rapid acceleration uh, is partially because the the number of tests uh, that are being done is going up, coupled with the fact that reports from those uh, tests are being are coming back more quickly. So uh, we expected to see this kind of acceleration. It's still sobering when you look at the numbers, though, uh, I, and I think that that it's probably helping with.
with people who uh, felt a little bit resistant to what we were doing. I think seeing the numbers uh, and 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 the fact that they're it's playing out uh, the way we were indicating we expected it to as we were taking steps. I think that's been a good thing. Uh, our our hospitals uh, don't have an uh, infinite supply of. of personal protective equipment, neither do our first responders. You know, I've got 750 or so firefighters, paramedics uh, that are, are uh, out every day. 75% of their calls are medical related, so we're very concerned about the availability of personal protective equipment for them as well as our health care workers. Uh, I know that uh, uh, we're, we are looking at every avenue to uh, lay our hands on more of that type of equipment, and we very much appreciate the help from the state and the fed, federal level uh, related to that. Uh, uh, but we also are looking at it from any other avenue that uh, we think might be effective. Uh, the the capacity of the healthcare system uh, and and our ability to continue to provide critical services to the community. It, 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 during the surge time uh, is really, the, I mean, that's really the basis for our biggest concern, and we are watching that very carefully. Bill, let me let Greg, me interject Greg, um, that's, something. Yeah, go in. ahead. In Sandy Springs, we've got a unique set of problems, and Jen will understand this. We have no cases. And that, you know, in a, the, the sixth largest city in the state, you've got to be shocked by that. Well, the reason we don't have any cases is because Sandy Springs numbers are being lumped in with the city of, of Atlanta because the Postal Service still only <laughs> recognizes Atlanta out here, does, has never oh, recognized wow. the creation of the city of Sandy Springs. So all of our statistics are getting reported as Atlanta just like our census forms all came out as Atlanta. Uh, and so that, there's some, some issues with reporting that's caused by the Postal Service and, and their refusal to acknowledge. We don't know how many cases we have in Sandy Springs. We have no way of tracking them yeah. as a result of this peculiar way that the Postal Service, which everybody uses their software to do all this tracking with, has uh, has just kind of ignored the fact that Johns Creek, Milton, South Fulton, uh, Stonecrest have all been created, and so you don't know where some of these cases are, are occurring because of this anomaly, uh, and so the statistics are a little skewed in some cases. It's not only a testing so, issue, Greg, but it's a reporting a, issue. Yeah, uh, so Greg, that, uh, that's an, an important point, uh, but let's talk also about testing. Uh, I said it, as we started the show, it's a little bit surprising, Greg, that Georgia has had the lowest per capita rate of testing of any state in the country. Uh, the headlines this morning, as you well know, Greg, are that we're going to see a ramping up at a pretty rapid pace because universities in uh, Georgia, the public universities, are now uh, helping make uh, more and more uh, equipment, testing facilities available uh, and yet, uh, what Rusty said is true. It's not only the, the postal code, it's that there's not enough testing for him to have a clear idea of what's going on in his own community. And I suspect that Charlotte may have the same problem over in Gwinnett. Greg, w when are we going to really see a difference here? Yeah, I mean, it all goes down to testing, not just the testing, but the lag in 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 conducting the test and, and getting the results because we have we have people who have been waiting sometimes for days even more than a week to get those test results 
back. And so in, that, in those scenarios, it's, it's really hard to get an accurate count, too, obviously. Right now, there's such a scarcity of tests that the governor's guidelines, as well as many hospitals' guidelines, are unless you're a first responder or someone on the front lines of this, if you've got mild symptoms, don't even bother trying to get a test, um, at least from, from, from public sources, at least from your hospital or your doctor's office, um, to kind of hang in there and wait out uh, unless your symptoms get worse. And that, that, that's, a, that's a major problem. The dream is to have rapid testing, to have a blood test or, or, or rapid testing that could, like you have for the flu, where you can get the results in, in less than 15, 20 minutes. But right now we're still at, a, at such a backlog that it takes days. And even, even with this good news that the state is now going to be up to 3,000 additional case, uh, tests a, a day, um, when, this, when, this, when the University System of Georgia's um, project gets implemented, um, there's still going to be such a huge demand for tests. Um, and, and people who, who might have um, negative test results um, but still have the symptoms, there's some false negatives out there, too. And there's a big New York Times article about that th this morning. So there's going to be demand for, for multiple tests in some cases as well. Yeah, yeah I, I think the, the New York Times reported this morning. Oh. Hey, Go ahead, Bill, Jen. I was on a call this, this week with the Cobb Douglas public health officials and one of the things that they said was incredibly concerning is that they were seeing result times really being about 12 to 14 days out. I mean, we're talking about a two-week lag here. Um, and I think the governor has acknowledged that in some of his, you know, public statements and, and, and press briefings where he says, you know, our information is about, is, is really about two weeks old. And so I think that's concerning in terms of we're seeing these numbers spike in terms of reporting right now. Um, but I think we're really about two weeks behind. Well, in Sandy Springs, so, we've got some assets. We've got uh, a company here called Capstone Health, which can do the tests in about uh, three or four hours, and, and they're reaching out to the hospitals and public health. Uh, that will help a lot. We've got another lab here that has this this uh, technology. It's been a throughput issue because, this remember, this virus was unknown uh, three months ago. And they've had to develop all these tests, but uh, the medical community is getting there. And we've got some assets out here that uh, we hope that other hospitals and communities will start taking advantage of. And we can increase the testing with some of these private labs that have uh, built the technology to do it much more quickly. Capstone's one of them, uh, and they're they're running a lot of them much more fast or much more quickly uh, than they were uh, just two weeks ago. So, Jen, before we take a break, I, I want to go to your personal situation for just a moment, if I can, because I think you uh, are, are a good example of, of people who are in a situation where they're not sure what they should do if they've been exposed, if they think they've been exposed to the virus. You were part of that special one-day session of the legislature in which you voted to give the governor emergency powers. Um, and, of course, Brandon Beach was in the middle of, he had been tested, he didn't have the results yet, but he came down there to the Senate, uh, your your room in the Capitol, and uh, when he was found to be positive, you and your colleagues all had to uh, self-isolate. Tell me about that experience for you, and did you want to get tested? Did you get tested? Did you simply wait uh, sadly, to see if you were going to develop the this, this symptoms? How, how did you handle what happened? Yeah, and I think this goes back to what uh, Greg was talking about, false negatives. Actually, um, Senator Bruce Thompson had been in the ER the week before. I think it was uh, Monday or Tuesday night the week before, 
And um, when he came back, he said that he had had a negative uh, COVID-19 test. Um, we know later, you know, a week or two fast forward that he had another test that came back positive. Um, so, you know, he was in session all that week before. Brandon was in session all that week before. Um, and I think what we know now is that people really are asymptomatic or can be asymptomatic for up to 14 days before they start showing symptoms. But during that time, um, they're highly contagious. Um, and apart from that, I think we've seen just how contagious. Let's say one person brought it into the chamber. It's resulted in five, you know, positive tests. And I know that most people haven't gotten tested. I didn't get tested. I, I was sick the first week, didn't know if it was a cold or something else. I feel better now. But my symptoms were never um, bad enough to justify uh, going in and trying to get a test, especially um, when there are so many people that are critically ill uh, that are desperately just trying to get a test and trying to get their results back. Um, but I'll tell you, it's scary. Um, I've got small kids. Um, and you know, being in there and being exposed to something like that and knowing how contagious it is and having gone about my normal life, you know, these last 14 days have not been fun. I mean, allergies, you think, oh, what is that? Or you don't feel good one day or you have a bad headache. Um, and, you know, I can imagine that, you know, for people who, who have any kind of underlying condition, it's really it's really, really scary. And so that's why it just makes sense for everybody just to, to stay home. Um, that's that's a, a great way to end uh, this segment, Jen. I appreciate it. Let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, Charlotte Nash, Rusty Paul, Jen Jordan, and Greg Bluestein continue our conversation on Political Rewind. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, a couple of uh, program notes. Uh, first and foremost, uh, Governor Kemp is having a news conference at 5 o'clock this afternoon. We're going to carry it on GPB Radio. You can see it on our Facebook page, GPB News Facebook page, uh, or uh, anywhere else you really get your news from GPB. We'll have it for you. And then a quick program note about our show. A couple of our panelists uh, so far today have talked about uh, the hospital situation in their communities. Uh, tomorrow on Political Rewind, I'm going to be talking with the CEO of Grady Hospital, John Halpert, to get a f- sense from him of what they're doing down at Grady to prepare for the virus. But, uh, but also because he's in touch with hospitals in various parts of the metro area and across the state to get a broader view of what's happening with hospitals as they ramp up to deal with what's expected to be an influx of patients. That's tomorrow. Uh, Charlotte Nash, Rusty Paul, Senator Jen Jordan, and Greg Bluestein with us uh, at this point. Let's change. Greg, there's not an aspect of our lives that has not been affected by the coronavirus. And 
and one that matters a great deal to people who uh, are on Political Rewind, to those of us who cover politics, is the way it has upended the electoral season, the 2020 campaign season. And um, it's interesting that Brad Raffensperger, uh, a couple of weeks ago, did say that there was no way that we could hold a presidential primary on March 24th. And so he ordered that the presidential preference primary be moved to May 19th, which is the date of the general primary elections for all other offices in the state. But now, Greg, uh, two things have happened. One, Speaker David Ralston on this show last week said, we want this, we, that election needs to be even later because poll workers who are usually older may not be safe and people may not want to come to the polls because we'll still be in the middle of this. Uh, Raffensperger said, sorry, we're still holding it. But now, Greg, every Republican member of the Georgia congressional delegation has urged him to move it as well. Tell us about that. Yeah, and it's a fascinating coalition because it includes Doug Collins and Kelly Leffler, two rivals for the same Senate seat uh, in November, includes allies of Governor Kemp and and folks who are not as as, uh, um, you know, as aligned with him um, as well. And so, yeah, they, they're joining the speaker's push to delay the primary um, by a month. This, Brad Raffensperger has a, has, a, has a unique response, too. He said, look, I've told you guys um, I can't do this unilaterally. It either takes legislation, uh, which would require summoning lawmakers back to the, to the General Assembly, to the Capitol, or it takes an executive order from Governor Kemp. Um, I asked Governor Kemp about this last week uh, during an interview, and he basically sidestepped the question, saying it's you know it's it's a it's a Secretary of State issue, not not something that he's focused on yet. But that could be changing now that a growing number of Republicans are are raising concerns about the timing of this primary. Well, Charlotte, your election officials are going to have to run that primary whenever it takes place. Do you have you weighed in at all in terms of your thinking about whether you think that you can go ahead with a primary on May nineteenth? Well, we're, we've been busy working with our our election officials here, uh, looking at, at all the avenues. Uh, I will, uh, I, I, I definitely am concerned about the aspect of the poll workers. Uh, poll workers' uh, average age in Gwinnett County is probably uh, a little bit north of my age, and and I'm well into the uh, senior citizen category. So uh, uh, we are concerned uh, about any. Thing that brings uh, numbers of people together, um, and and we're looking at uh, uh, we're looking at how we can manage to enforce distancing and that sort of thing. Uh, we're trying we're preparing as if we're going to have to ha- ha- follow through with the election uh, on May nineteenth, but uh, it it would be my preference if it it occurred later as opposed to on that date. Rusty, um, you're a veteran. You've been uh, you've dealt with elections as the former chairman of the state Republican Party. Uh, you know, among other uh, offices you've held in the state. How do you feel about the Raffensperger insistence that if he sends these absentee ballot applications to all 6.9 million registered voters, which I think have begun going out in the mail this week, that he believes that you can shift the election to largely an, uh, a, a mail-in election, and that will alleviate the problems that many people are thinking about. Is, is he being realistic there? 
Well, it causes cardiac arrest among anybody who knows the history of, of uh, absentee voting in this state. If there's ever been elections stolen, uh, and I don't think there are very many elections stolen, let me say that up front. And I think it's a very, very rare occurrence. But when it happens, it tends to involve absentee ballots. And if you mail them out to every voter, then you've got a lot of ballots just floating around uh, that, that may come back under nefarious purposes. But this, these are extraordinary times. Uh, you got to hold an election. Uh, I think probably Brad's right from the point of view that he can't. I know the legislature gave him a lot of discretion in setting the presidential primary, but they haven't given him a lot of discretion on uh, the other primary. And then you re- got to recall that there was a there's a judicial order that separates the primaries and the elections from the runoff. And so you have to figure that in to your timing. So it's a, it's a very delicate and, and complicated process. But I tell you, running elections, is, it's done by volunteers. They get a little bit of money, but they're generally retired people who you know, like going out and, and, and helping with the elections. And I don't know how many of them will show up if you hold an election in May right now. Jen, your take on this. Yeah, I think the biggest issue is that we need to be prepared. You know, we need to prepare kind of for the worst. I mean, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And what we don't need to do is sit on our hands right now and think, well, we don't know if it's going to be that bad at the end of May, um, or we don't know how bad it's going to be. I mean, really, if, if I were the Secretary of State, I would be moving forward with trying to put a plan um, into place for vote by mail kind of across the board, because that may be where we are, um, and kind of present it to the, the governor and whatever we need to do to make that happen, because I think people want to vote. People should be allowed to vote, but at the same time, we need to make sure that people are protected. So let me ask you a procedural question, Jen, because um, I'm not quite certain how this would work. Uh, the law does apparently, we think, say that the Secretary of State has the ability to move an election on his own 45 days uh, either before or after it was originally set. But beyond that, it's up to the legislature, as Greg Bluestein pointed out to us. If that's the case, where would a – given the legislature's not in session – who would would it be up to the governor to call you all back for a day, which I know you don't want to do, to vote on a, a bill that that uh, one of his floor leaders would introduce to move the election to a later date? What what is do you know what the procedure would be for that? I'm not quite sure. I can tell you that there has been chatter and people have been talking about the fact that the governor may have the power um, to do it on his own by executive order because of the powers always already granted to it by the General Assembly. Um, if it did require a special session, there's also been talk back and forth um, about whether or not we could do that electronically, um, where it says that the, the, the regular session people have to show up in person um, in terms of the Constitution. It really is silent as to if you have to do that um, with respect to a special session. So I think we're just in, in, in completely different times. And, you know, we have to make sure that people are as protected as possible, um, but still doing what we need to do to make sure that we have a functioning government. Um, so there are lots of smart people out there, lots of people sitting at home with time on their hands. And so, 
You know, it's one of those things that if we we go ahead and we get a plan now, we figure it out. Um, we're not, you know, in an emergency situation. You know, once we get into April when we're throwing our hands up, going, well, what are we going to do now? I mean, that's just it. We kind of have to prepare now, get the plan ready to go so that when we know that we're not going to be able to hold elections at the end of May, if we're at that point, um, then we can basically pull the trigger on what we need to do. Greg, there's additional complications to this, especially for Democrats voting in their presidential preference primary. It is conceivable that if an election is delayed too far into June, the Democratic National Committee uh, is ha- may have rules which would say that Georgia's delegation could not be seated because they've passed the deadline for uh, having an election in which a candidate is chosen. And simultaneous to that, and this is really not a basis of uh, 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 this isn't a matter of law, uh, but Joe Biden has now said he doesn't know how the Democrats are going to be able to meet for a convention in July as they plan to. So those two elements, again, complicate and upend everything we've thought about in terms of the election this year. They do. They really really do. The coronavirus campaign is, is what it is now. And look, there's waivers that the Democratic Party can get. Um, in, in order to, uh, to to try to still you know maintain their delegates, there's exceptions that they can apply for. But we saw with the Republican Party, it wasn't as easy as that. The Republicans still had to meet a few weekends ago in very scaled back um, convention meetings. I, I went to one in Cobb County where they handed out Ebola, masks from the Ebola crisis four years ago to people at the door um, and, and practice social distancing with just a few people in the room. But um, it, it's been real tough all around on, on, on political campaigning. All right, let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way. And when we come back, more with Charlotte Nash, Rusty Paul, Jen Jordan, and Greg Bluestein. With the time we have remaining in the show, I want to go back and pick up a couple of items that relate very specifically to the coronavirus that we're dealing with uh, around the world right now. Charlotte Nash. Uh, the United Nations has issued a report which, uh, in which they say that this is the single biggest test that the U.N. has faced since the formation of the United Nations uh, back in 1948. And here's a couple of the figures they cite on this. They say the International Monetary Fund has declared that the world economy is now entered a recession and that recovery is unlikely until 2021. As many as 25 million jobs could simply disappear. The world could lose some $3.4 trillion in labor income. More than 1.5 billion students are currently out of school or university, representing 87% of the world's children and young people, and about 60 million teachers are no longer in in the classroom. Now, you, uh, 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 Miss Chairwoman, don't have to deal with the world on this, but your <laughs> county is going to be affected by every single one of those things I just uh, read from the UN report. 
Well, and and in fact, we we are so connected uh, that uh, what happens in other parts of the world have a have an effect right here in Gwinnett County. Uh, I think all of you know how diverse our community is, and both from business uh, perspective and and from our residents as well. So, I I I fully admit I have been focused uh, uh, very much on Gwinnett County and its cities and what happens here in our surrounding jurisdictions from a practical uh, standpoint and and just from the necessity of of what I can have a direct influence on. However, those kind of situations that you've been described, that you uh, provided information on uh, from the UN uh, are going to affect us as well. As I noted when I talked about making the decision to go to the stay-at-home and even some of the earlier decisions, I knew that every one of those was going to affect the economy. And and the economy is not just numbers; it, it's it's, it's uh, individuals, it's families, all those folks that are affected by a shutdown of a business or a restriction on their operations, uh, restrictions on people's uh, ability to follow their normal course of life. All of that is an impact that had to be weighed in on it. Uh, and and people can can you know I, I fully recognize the right of people to criticize whether we've done enough or we've not uh, uh we should have done uh less uh but we're doing what we think is the right thing at the point in time that we're looking at the situation uh and we're right. we're dealing we're doing that with imperfect information uh I, as i noted earlier in in my remarks i've never seen anything like this in my 40 plus years of being involved with local government uh i am incredibly proud of how our community is responding to this uh we've got had so much uh uh outpouring of of willingness to cooperate of of doing things for each other and and in many ways that's the most powerful thing that's coming out of this is a reminder a recognition of how interconnected we are and how the community can can accomplish many great things on their own uh i hope that that attitude will continue as we go through uh, uh, the process that we're going to be going through for a, a long period of time, uh, and it, during Let the recovery, coming out during the recovery as that begins to occur. I, I'm sorry. Hey, Ginger, real quick, we are rapidly running out of time, but I know you're concerned about uh, what's happening in rural Georgia. We had the mayor of uh, Albany on the other day, and he told us how dire the situation is. You've got about uh, 40 seconds to say what your hopes are for next steps for the rural parts of the state. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got to get aggressive just statewide. I mean, the numbers are are horrifying. Just to kind of put it into perspective, right now, Coming out of Doherty County, for every 10,000 people that they have down there, 51 people have the confirmed virus. Now, so you say, well, what does that necessarily mean? Well, if you look at Fulton County and our numbers, for every 10,000 people, we only have six folks that have the confirmed virus. So I think it, it's, it is just so important that this entire state is on the same page and that people, you know, they need to stay home. Because the most important thing for our economy, for our lives, you know, is our health and the ability actually to be able to get up and go to work after all this is over. So I really hope that folks understand it's not Fulton, it's not Gwinnett, it's not Cobb. It really is all of us 
And we've got to really start thinking about it that way. um, We are completely out of time. Uh, Rusty, I I apologize. I would like to get a last word in from you. But you know what? We're going to invite you back real soon. (laughs) Charlotte Nash, Rusty Paul, Jen Jordan, Greg Bluestein, thank you so much for uh, what was uh, one of the most informative shows I feel like we've been doing in in the recent days. So thank you for being with us. Thank you out there for listening. Continue sending me your emails. I'm getting great notes from you about how you're dealing day-to-day life. B Nigut, B-N-I-G-U-T at gpb.org. I'd really love to hear from you. Uh, that's it for today. Tomorrow, the CEO of Grady Hospital joins us to talk on Political Rewind. <laughs>